are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke. Thanks so much for tuning in. NBA action last night was some good ones. Memphis pulling off a big win. We'll talk with Sam Amick about that coming up in just a minute or two. We'll talk with Sam about the Toronto Raptors and their early start to the season, how brilliant they have been. We'll touch on his article coming up on freedom of movement and then run through some of the biggest stories in the league. Last night, Detroit got a nice road win in Orlando, keeping hope alive in Detroit, Oklahoma City. Dennis Schroeder led it without Russell Westbrook in Cleveland for a good win there. And Philadelphia uh, beat Indiana for their first road win of the year. New Orleans beat Chicago 107-98. to We probably won't touch on any of those games, but we will touch on the Raptors early play player movement and what the impact of that has been how the Raptors maybe are playing money ball a little differently than everybody else and then run through some of the big questions of the NBA such as when the Jimmy Butler situation comes to end what does Luke Walton actually have to do to make Magic Johnson happy how long can Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz still play together and are the Boston Celtics having a problem of too much talent all those things coming up on today's edition of Locked on NBA Joined for a Thursday conversation with Sam Amick of The Athletic. He joins the Locked On NBA lineup once a week. It happens to have been with me the last few weeks. Maybe I'll just steal him from everybody else and talk to him all the time since we had such a great time last week. How are you, Sam? David, doing great, my friend. Just uh, took in a little Kings Raptors last night. I'm, I'm doing the NorCal kind of home front tour this week. A lot of good action. I got the Wolves coming through. On Friday, I get the Lakers on Saturday. I'm going down to Oakland for Warriors-Bucks tonight. So, no complaints, man. Plenty of good hoops action. When the year started, I picked... I said I thought the Warriors and Raptors were considerably better than any other team in their conference. I actually thought both of them would be in the mid-60s and that everybody else would be in the mid-50s, that they could both win their conferences by as many as 10 games. Uh, Nothing that I've seen out of Toronto has dissuaded me. In fact, they, without Kawhi against the Jazz, looked incredible. What did you see against Sacramento? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I guess to the Kings' credit, you know, not, excuse me, not to, you know, not as overwhelming as it was against the Lakers without Kawhi. But, I mean, it was solid, and it was another display of the depth that they have. Uh, You know, Kawhi was actually pretty quiet for, like, the first two and a half quarters. He got it going, hit a big three late. Um, You know, they they just – they've got a lot in their favor. Kyle Lowry is playing really, really good basketball. And, you know, I like what they bring to the table. I had a funny – little exchange in the locker room uh per it was in, in the morning after shoot arounds or before shoot around for toronto and danny green was sitting there and Kawhi was sitting there and i know Kawhi a little bit and by that not to make it sound like a stretch but like i did a story on him going into uh the draft when he came out from san diego state and that's kind of the you know at least gotten me to a place where i get some recognition when i see him and say hello and so I, he's sitting at his locker and Danny's sitting there and I was complaining to both of them because I said, you know what guys, I was really excited the other night to watch Lakers Raptors on this uh, Oculus virtual reality headset that I have. And, and it was getting aired in VR. And, uh, and I, this is kind of a, a new thing I've been trying and I was kind of pumped, but it's the only game over like a two week period that is broadcast in VR. And I'm like, I put this thing on, and then y'all are up 41 to 10 
after a quarter. Like, come on, are you kidding me right now? You know, and this is a Lakers LeBron team that really needed a win. So they, uh, I mean, they're, they're bringing a ton to the table. They're very, very good. And Kawhi's health, I think, is the, the obvious thing. We just got to keep watching all year long. So I have an interesting uh, thought or two on them and talked to Nick Nurse about it a little bit, and I want to bring that up. I um, This is not an ad for Oculus. I didn't know that Sam had this. What's VR like? Uh, I like it, and, and it's okay. This this is an ad from the family perspective. In the interest of, of transparency, what got me into it was uh, I've actually got two cousins, uh, more like brothers, as I always say, Tim Amick and Matt Amick, who they work for Next VR, which is the company that has the contract with the NBA uh, and they're on the creative side and they, uh, you know, they're, they're very influential and in, in kind of doing what they do across all sports and entertainment, but they got me into it. And I even, you know, that that's the end, but I've enjoyed it. And what's neat is that it's certainly a different vantage point. They have cameras behind the rim, uh, you know, where you might have you know, the Raptors on the break and Kawhi's barreling at you. Uh, and then you go the other way and you got a camera in midcourt or it's, uh, you know, a different vantage point. You might hear a coach talking about a rotation or yelling at a ref. And then they have their own commentators also. So it's uh, it's a different look at it. And you got to get used to having the headset on, but it's real light. And, you know, they need, you know, the Oculus side of it, the battery power, you almost have to recharge at halftime, which is kind of problematic. But it's fun. It's just a different way to take in the game. It's interesting. Um, wow, kind of wild. Can you choose your camera? No, they. It's produced, um, so they choose for you. Uh, you know, you can certainly choose where you look. It's uh, it's a hundred and eighty degree look at it, so you're not turning around and seeing, you know, the kid who's stuffing his face with popcorn. But it's it's hundred eighty degrees, and you know they've got. They've got, uh, I mean, one of the funny parts is because you don't have commercials, it's like every break in the action, you're just, you do kind of feel like they're there. You're watching the arena. You, the, the, a lot of times they'll take you up to the top of the lower concourse and you can see the Jumbotron during the break in the action. And you might see the dance team doing what they do or, you know, the t-shirt cannon guy or whatever else is going on. So they control that. It's not to the point where you can sit there and pick your camera. But uh, but it is wild. I mean, it, I would say in terms of takeaways, what has struck me the most is that you take in the physicality of the game, both on like the kind of the brutality element, but also just the ballet element, if that makes sense. Like you, I feel like I appreciate the artistic side of what these guys do differently because if you have that camera on the rim and you're watching a guy's footwork from the bird's eye view – and you literally feel like you're looking down at it, it just kind of, you kind of process it in a different way. All right, so I want to talk Raptors for a second, um, and this will probably leak into our next segment. But I talked to Nick Nurse about this. I think they're on to something in the money ball realm that's different than the rest of the NBA. And my quick thesis on this is that they are only letting their good shooters take mid-range shots and having their bad shooters take threes, which is a complete flip on what it used to be, right? You used to tell your bad shooter, well, you can't shoot threes. It's too far away. Come in and take a mid-range shot, and then you're taking even, having your bad shooter take an even less efficient shot, frankly. But so the premise here, let me say it again, see if that makes sense. What I, I, and I, yeah, I'm trying to wrap I'm my pretty, head around I'm it. I'm pretty certain of this because um, I actually, frankly, pulled Nick Nurse aside and asked him about it. 
Um, and he looked at me like, wow, someone might have some. He like, kind of gave me this, like, wow, good eye. Like, and I don't know him at all. So this was our first right. conversation. There was no – I've been in the league for 25 years, and I didn't know Nick Nurse, so that's on me. Um, the, they allow their good mid-range shooters to take mid-range shots, and they allow what I would call their less good shooters to only shoot threes. And I bet you they only let their – less good shooters take their threes early in transition to spread the floor because they're playing a lot in transition. Here's the numbers to back it up. OG Ananobi, not a very good shooter, right? He's taken 33 threes in one mid-range shot. Danny Green has only taken five mid-range shots. He just doesn't. That's not what he does. Um, Pascal Siakam, not a good shooter. 18 threes, only made three of them, two mid-range shots. Fred Van Vliet, not a very good shooter. 33 particularly this year, 35 threes, only made 10 of them, only taking eight mid-range shots. DeLon Wright, not a very good shooter. Nine three-point attempts, three mid-range shots. They are shooting 49% on long twos this year. 49%. However, which is incredibly high, by the way, league average on that is 38%. So this is a a huge edge for them to be able to have this. 99 of the 144 mid-range shots, 69% of them, have come from Serge Ibaka, Kawhi Leonard, or Kyle Lowry. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. I mean, did he did he peel the the, the onion a little bit for you and tell you He's, how he saw that? He said, I, I, I felt as though he agreed with me. Um, he said, yes, we have specific shots we want certain people to take at certain times, and you have a good eye on this. Was his comment right? Right. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't want to sit there and bury certain guys and, and kind of state the obvious that you're highlighting. That's interesting. I mean, this it kind of dovetails with what we talked about last week, you know. And and I know we've talked about the Jazz a bit as well. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, it was the Rockets when you talked right. about the edge that they had last season that they don't have this year. Uh, I mean that that's the stuff where even covering the league and and for the hardcore fans, you know. We're probably you do a great job of this, but we're probably not doing a great job of realizing you know which guys are playing chess and which guys are playing checkers, um, because these are the discussions that go on internally all the time. And you know what you ask Nick about is you know not a passing fancy, no pun intended, but like it's it's clearly seems to be by design, and that's where we're at in the league is that the competitive landscape is so. It's so tight and the Warriors are so good that every team is just trying to get as much blood out of the turnip as possible and figure out where to find an edge. The misnomer that's out there is that there's no such thing as a good mid-range shot. At least 20 to 25% of everyone's shots are going to be paint non, or excuse me, non-restricted area twos. Okay, the least efficient shots are non-restricted area twos. But it's, you, there's, it's almost impossible. You can't take none of them. And so I think right. what you're seeing is certain teams, the Rockets with the addition of Chris Paul last year, figuring out how to be the best at those shots. And the teams that are best at them right now are Toronto is the best in the league, Portland's the second best in the league, Houston's the third best, the Warriors are fourth best, Detroit's fifth best, probably taking too many of them. Um, you, you don't want to go nuts with it, but it's a pretty interesting concept that suddenly there are five or six teams that are taking advantage of the mid-range at a, at a rate where they're, they're adding themselves a few points a night by doing that. Right. 
I, I and I, I'm with you 100 percent on that line of thinking. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on which coach said this recently, but I, I heard somebody talk about how the, you know, the threes in and at the rim approach, you know, has already had this kind of next level ripple effect where, you know, the the irony is that it opens up the post in a way that some coaches were now looking at the post and wondering what they might be able to get accomplished there. And I think along those lines, the idea with the, the mid range would be if you're going to shoot them, you need to be so targeted with the mid range component of your game that it's got to be in the neighborhood of, of kind of, you know, being at the rim when it comes to the reliability factor, you've got to have that, you know, 49% uh, in, in type of production. Uh, so that makes sense. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that these players and these coaches and even more so the players that this stuff can get processed and executed in real time, because this all sounds great when you and I are sitting here just chopping it up on a podcast and analyzing the game, you know, these are decisions that are being made on the fly every time down the floor, which is just pretty wild to me. The biggest change this year to last year, you brought it up uh, last week when we talked, is the amount of shots in the restricted area. That is up 33.5% of all shots are now happening at the rim. Last year was 31.6. That's a pretty big difference. And Sam's doing a piece on The Athletic about player movement and why that might be the case, and we're going to touch on that when we continue. Sam Amick of The Athletic. You can get a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash NBA. You can get a great discount, just $2.99 a month to start when you do that at theathletic.com slash NBA. Sam, have you um, are, have you followed our new social networking sites? By the way, on Twitter and on Instagram, because they're I'm like, I, this is really like you know how kids, you know how dads brag about their kids. Like this is me bragging. <laughs> this is the comparable thing right here. So we are doing the coolest things. Our Twitter feed, locked on NBA Net, is now every single one of our hosts on one feed. When there's like last nice. night, when there's ten games going on, like last night, it's really awesome. And then. Well, I'm currently typing in. There you go. I appreciate I'm that. I'm not following it. So, Locked on NBA. Locked on NBA net on Twitter. Net. Yep. And then I'm, on, I'm looking at the old Twitter. There, there it go. is. I got it. And on Instagram, and I know you're, you know, I've, you know, you're a Snapchatter. I know I followed you on Snapchat. I'm, I'm kind of over Snapchat. Okay. I've, I've moved on. I'm just All Instagram right. now. On Instagram, Locked on NBA net, same is uh, on the Long versions on the feed, on the short, the biggest stories of the day, quick hitters from our hosts, snippets from their shows, in so you get kind of the three biggest stories in one minute. Pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, I'm that pretty, is cool. Pretty proud of I just followed that. that as well. All right, so thank you. Uh, and and I mean, when, when you're you done typing, follow me back. Jeez, I mean, locked on NBA Twitter is not even following me. Come on, David. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> we actually, though, you know what? You might be included in that. Um, you might be included in that feed, for all you know. You should tweet to see if you suddenly show up there. Um, there you go. You are doing a piece that comes out either today or tomorrow on The Athletic um, about um, uh, about the freedom of movement. What did you discover? Uh, fun story to do. It's, uh, I don't know, I, you always publish pretty quickly when we do these pods, so it's a Thursday afternoon it's supposed to come out kind of for the East coast crowd and then we'll recycle it out Friday morning for West coasters and everybody else. But, um, what it was, you know, I guess the genesis of it was when I was in LA and this is a couple of weeks ago, um, the Lakers 
lost to San Antonio in overtime. It was 143 to 142. And the Spurs gave up more points than they had ever given up in the Greg Popovich era. And I asked Rudy, I'm sorry, I asked LaMarcus Aldridge if he was aware of that. And he said no. And then Rudy Gay, from about five feet away, had made a crack about how the league was going soft. And then it was clear that Rudy had something to say. And I might, I feel like I might have already shared this story with you, David, but it still is kind of, this is where the story idea came from. But bottom line, Rudy says the league's going soft. LaMarcus kind of laughs and he says, well, I just had 18 free throws tonight, so I'm not about to say anything. And it captured the kind of mixed emotions going on in the league right now because the freedom of movement emphasis that, you know, they, they told teams it was coming that, you know, they, their explanation is that this was already the rule book. The rules just were not being enforced. And so um, the phrasing of the movement is pretty self-explanatory. Offensive players are, you know, have a lot more liberty to get around the court and get where they want to get. And so what I did was, I just wanted to get both sides of the discussion. So I had a pretty lengthy discussion with Monty McCutcheon, the VP of referee operations and the, and the former referee for 25 years. He's the head of kind of the referee side of things and the NBA side of things. And then I talked to personally, I talked to Rudy, I talked to LaMarcus Aldridge, uh, and I talked to Kawhi yesterday. And then I, I kind of, not kind of, I leaned on my athletic colleagues and had them collect a bunch of perspective from locker rooms all over the country, which is kind of a nice little handy tool that comes with having, you know, being part of a great staff at the athletic is that we've got, you know, writers in in every locker room. And so the story is a juxtaposition of the kind of taking a pulse from the league standpoint where they say unabashedly that this is working to its desired intent and desired, you know, uh, results. And then a lot of complicated feedback and reaction from players and coaches and even, you know, executives who wouldn't go on record, but one who, you know, the GM who called it effing absurd, he was pretty hot about how this is going. So just tried to kind of capture that whole conversation right now. I think there's some, there's a cycle here that I think's really interesting that's going on. So they called it in the preseason. And then I don't know if the officials themselves were really certain about where things stood. And I think there's been more fouls called. I don't know this. I haven't looked it up. I meant to, and I have not. But I think there have been more fouls called in the last few games again because my guess, this is totally a guess, is that the, the officials have started to be evaluated and now have, you know, each have called three or four or five or six games, and there's five or six games of tape on them, and Monty McCutcheon and his crew are coming back on them and saying, you got to call this. And this is where we're really going to see its impact is that the, the, the officials go through a few games, call it, don't call it to the sufficient amount. Monty McCutcheon and his crew seem absolutely set and the competition committee on having this be the new standard. Now the officials call it again on the players, and now we're going to see the players start to adjust as they realize, oh, this is really how it's going to be. Yeah, I think you're probably in the ballpark um, because one, in terms of Monty's, and I enjoy, I like talking to Monty. He's a good communicator. I kind of, I poke fun at myself almost in the story because it was like, good luck winning a debate with Monty McCutcheon because he's a better communicator than you and he and he knows the evidence better than you. And, you know, but he, but he still also makes you just feel like you're learning and you're at least getting his perspective. And so 
one thing that was abundantly clear for like from Monty's side of things is he used the word will. And he said, essentially make no mistake. I have the will to see this thing all the way through to the end of the season. And anybody who thinks that it's going to level off the out of, out of fatigue would be mistaken. Now, the one distinction that he makes that is very important is that he said, now, listen, Sam, that does not mean that two months from now, you know, I don't want you to come back at me and say, Hey, you said it wouldn't level off and you're calling, you know, three or four fewer fouls per game in January than you were in November. His thing is defenses and players and coaches are going to adjust. And so the number of whistles might decline, but it's not necessarily an indication of the referees having not seen this thing through. You are, I mean, you really are. And and to me, this is very interesting. You are seeing players very quickly just learn and adjust and do, you know, I actually meant to use the word rewiring in the story and I didn't use it, but that's what's happening. They have to rewire as defenders. Uh, as a quick aside, my favorite part of talking to Kawhi, who was really good on it, um, was that, and I'm paraphrasing, but at one point he, he essentially said, it's not that big a deal. It is what it is. I didn't ever use my hands that much anyway. And then he, and then he, he talked about how chasing shooters is the biggest problem. And then he, and he was like, well, you know, it's only a problem if you, if you let your guy get by you, which the way I, I can't really properly convey how he communicated it, but it, he might as well have been like, well, it's only a problem if you're not as good at, at defense as I am, you know, which was a nice luxury for him to have. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it offense is up. Fans do love it, but you know, players and coaches don't necessarily. It's an interesting note you have there that makes me almost wonder whether or not some of, I mean, I think about it from a numbers perspective, of course, um, whether or not some of our numbers analysis has to try to figure out or when we're trying to figure out who's good and who's not based on when these guys actually get comfortable with these rule changes. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I like, listen, another, you know, athletic plug, Ethan Strauss had a column on the Warriors in the context of freedom of movement. And, and, you know, you make me think of that because, you know, he made a great point, which was like, to the victor go the spoils, right? Like, these are the champs. And, oh, by the way, now we are going to make sure we enforce the parts of the rule book that take this incredible historic super team and give them even more leeway to do what they do. I mean, you could argue that no team is going to benefit from this adjustment than the Warriors. And, you know, across the league, I'm with you that we're not going to know for a little while who's good at adjusting and who's not. Because, you know, I mean, if anecdotally, if I compare my conversation with Rudy Gay to my conversation with Kawhi Leonard, you know, I would be worried if I was Pop versus Nick Nurse. As Rudy sounded like a guy who wasn't necessarily anywhere close to finding the solutions. And Kawhi just had to kind of hit a few buttons on that robotic mind of his and, and kind of move along and keep dominating. Sam Amick is our guest. We'll run through some rapid-fire questions about the league and things we're seeing last night's action, looking ahead to, uh, to tonight's action as well, all coming up on Locked on NBA. Memphis beats Dallas last night in a slow game, below 90 possessions played, 89-87. My feeling on them is that, okay, 
I don't buy it's happening at game 35 or 40, but they're pretty darn good right now. Yeah, no, they are. I mean, I feel like on this one, I feel like I should have had more faith in myself because from a projection standpoint, because, you know, I really, I'm a big Mike Conley, Mark Gasol guy. And I kind of felt like they're not 38 years old and Mike's going to have a lot to play for motivation wise coming off injury. And, you know, Mark has definitely looked like his, his game's going in the wrong direction. But, you know, we, we should have known for quite some time that Mike and Mark, most of the time, can get you to the playoffs in the West. And then you add in a Jaron Jackson and, and people like that. I mean, Mark absolutely dominated Jokic. Um, and, you know, that's just something that I didn't see coming. So, yeah, they look good. I like what they're doing. I almost feel like I want to go back, and I'm a, I might do it today, watch that game. How does Jokic get one shot? Like, is this one of the best defensive performances of the season? Well, not only that, I mean, the best part is I didn't watch the whole thing. I was watching it at the end, like a lot of the fourth quarter, and his only shot was the potential game winner, or at least game tying. I forget the sequence. But yeah, no, that's I it. don't know. But it it's a bad look, though, because Jokic only had three shots against Boston. You know, and so Jamal Murray's going crazy, although he wasn't efficient at all last night. Um so they're going to have to find a way to to get, you know, uh, spread the wealth there a little bit more. I mean, Jokic is certainly going to be a pass-first big and a guy who you run your offense through, but, you know, they can't be having him take four shots over the course of two games combined. He's taken 18 shots in four games. He was re- in the game. Holy Toledo. He had 16 assists in the Jazz game, and he so he was impactful, but he was very passive. It was, it was, it wow. was, it was strange. Um, how about... Uh, the revival of Derrick Rose. He did it again last night. I have a little bit of a hard time with the story because I feel like, um, I will admit, I have a hard time with the whole idea that because he scored 50, he became a good guy after last year's trial. Um, but he had 31 last night with 7 of 9 from 3. I almost wonder if Jeff Teague's even going to get his starting job back when he comes back. I know. Um, you know, I'm with you. It seems... You know, I mean, I guess I got to start believing it because he's, you know, dropping 50 and then missing a game because his his legs, he had some ankle issues. But, you know, the legs are still an issue. You can tell that he's trying to keep his body together. But, man, when he's out there, I mean, this guy, I mean, last night he's trash-talking the Lakers. He's dropping threes like crazy. Um, He looked great. You know, in that conversation – with uh, Tom Thibodeau that I talked to Tom at Wolves shoot around last week. And I had this chat with him that I I didn't know if I was going to use it or where to put it. But one thing he said stuck in my head, which is he definitively stated that when healthy, Derek Rose is still one of the best players in the NBA. And I, I kind of gave that a double take as I looked at it on my computer screen. And, you know, at first glance, you certainly just kind of say, all right, that's Tibbs with his, love affair for some of these different players like Jimmy Butler and whatnot. But I mean, these are big time performances and then these, the three game in particular, I mean, was he seven of eight, eight of nine, something like that yesterday? I mean, that's bonkers. The, all right, two stories that I think are percolating across the league and you wonder what's going to happen. Minnesota is four and eight. They're oh and seven on the road. When does this Jimmy Butler thing come to an end? I have no clue because I don't know 
how tempted, if at all, they have been to take any of these deals, you know, specifically Houston and Miami. Um, you know, my understanding was that at, at one point in time, you know, Josh Richardson was part of the pitch from Miami. And, and I would think that at this juncture, that with some other stuff should get the job done for Minnesota. I mean, I think it should. But then on the Houston side, a lot of focus on the four first-rounder offer and a lot of reason for debate, obviously. But I also, you know, my understanding is that earlier in the process, it was a different scenario where, you know, Eric Gordon in a first, something like that. So I just don't – but I don't know from Minnesota's side how close were they to grabbing one of these deals off the table. And, you know, how does that – kind of element reconcile with their level of frustration now and where, I mean, Glenn Taylor is the guy who's got to do something here. And I don't know Glenn well enough. I don't really know Glenn at all other than by reputation to know what his kind of tipping point is. So I don't know. I mean, right now it feels like it could go on for quite some time and uh, you know, it's, it's, they're kind of stuck in purgatory. Sixers got their first road win last night. It was a good one, but they're seven and five. I'd say they're underperforming. A lot of feeling that the Markel Fultz Ben Simmons combination does not work. How long do you think they stay with that? Um, I mean, I would say for quite some time longer because, you know, like the, you're going to have to be cognizant of Markel's mentality and his psyche and his makeup because he already had this rookie year where he was off the rails, you know, all across the board. And you have a number one pick who, you know, if you, if you kind of, if you show him that he let you down, then do you ever get him back? And that's a tricky spot to be in because you also can't afford to lose any of the enthusiasm coming from Ben coming, you know, and then Embiid is a different discussion because he's going to, it's not a matter of his enthusiasm, it's a matter of his happiness level. He's going to tell you what he thinks. So, I don't know. I mean, it's not looking good right now and, and it's tempting, I'm sure, to just plug JJ back into the starting lineup, but that's, these guys are trying to build something for the long haul and, I mean, JJ is not going to be part of that when it comes to the, the big, big picture. Celtics are 6-4. and four. Their 10 games are kind of blasé. Like They have a nice win against 76ers on the opener when they look great, and they've got a pretty good win. I mean, a really good win against the Bucs. I think the Bucs are on a back end of back-to-back that night, if I remember correctly. Um, but then they have these two kind of weird losses on this road trip, one of the Pacers, one of the Nuggets, but both those teams are really good, so it's not that big a deal. But do you feel that they're clicking on all cylinders, or do you think that they uh, – that maybe the fact that, I mean, when I totaled it up, if you took their last year's playoff usage, add Kyrie and Hayward, there were like 130 shots on average, meaning every player on that roster has to take a 30 to 40% decrease to be able to get through a game in their amount of shots they regularly take. Do you think that's beginning to show up a little bit? I do, yeah. No, I think they have legitimate problems offensively because – the thing about Kyrie that's going to get exposed a little bit, and this he doesn't need to lose any sleep over it because, you know, even LeBron's got he doesn't have many weaknesses in his game. But, you know, it's it's uh, Kyrie's not LeBron as a playmaker. He's not Magic as a playmaker, and that's not going to change anytime soon. But 
you know, they, so he plays the way he plays. He can take over a game for a stretch. The thing that I think is even more interesting to me is just this Gordon Hayward element. Um, if these were not human beings that we were talking about here and there weren't feelings involved and you were just playing video game basketball, like I would take Gordon off this team for a little bit and see how it looks. Because I think there's a correlation between, you know, Tatum in particular, who, you know, is all of a sudden becoming master of the mid-range, except he's not really mastering it. Uh, and he's just not doing what he did last year. And I think part of it is that they're all trying to fit in. And that's not a good way to function offensively. I mean, defensively, their depth and that kind of that, that you know, their version of the embarrassment of riches that they have comes in handy because you can throw waves of energy and athleticism at every team every single night for 48 minutes. It's just not that simple on the offensive end, and, and I don't think that problem is going to go away. I think, you know, Horford's playmaking is going to be very important going forward. they got to make sure they lean on him quite a bit as kind of a glue guy in that regard. But, but obviously I think there's enough sample size here to, to say that Boston has an issue there. The final one, what will be acceptable for Magic Johnson from Luke Walton? Uh, Record-wise or in what regard? have no idea because I don't really understand what the beef was. Yeah, I don't either. The beef is, I I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think Magic ends up looking bad with this situation. His his argument was not strong. You know, the idea of a system not being in place. um, You know, like I talked to some scouts and coaches about the idea that, and I wrote a column on this, that LeBron is the system. And, you know, you can't pretend that they're going to, you know, go go run a motion offense or something else that you think is going to solve the problem when LeBron's going to break plays frequently, Every you know, not every time down the floor, but a lot of times he's going to try to opt for pick and roll like LeBron runs it. And that's who you sign, and he's incredible. And usually you surround him with shooters, and it works pretty well, but they didn't surround him with shooters. So I can't imagine being – I mean, there's stuff with Luke to talk about. His rotations are, are tough. You know, he's trying to find combinations. It's early, all those things. But if you're Luke and you're in that meeting and you're sitting there looking at the guy who is the head of the front office and who put this roster together and there's zero, you know, at least conceivably zero accountability from that end, uh, I can't imagine the types of things that Luke bit his tongue on as far as kind of the delay of the Lakers' land. Sam, always a pleasure. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for the time. Read him on The Athletic. His story comes out tomorrow on Freedom of Movement. You can get it if you've not always subscribed at theathletic.com slash LockedOnNBA. And I think that starts at two ninety nine a month, so it's a pretty good deal. Sam, thanks very much for the time, and I hope you enjoy your new Instagram and Twitter follows. <laughs> Thank you, David. Talk to you next week.